Yes, hello. Welcome back to MLEX's weekly podcast with the top regulatory stories of the moment. My name is James Paniki from MLEX's Asia-Pacific team. Thank you for stopping by, especially if you're on a break in the Northern Hemisphere. We're glad to be part of your summer soundtrack. In just over 10 minutes' time, we'll be touching base with our financial services reporter Fiona Maxwell for the ticking time bomb facing the UK's clearinghouses. They're up against the very real prospect of losing their equivalent status with the EU, something that will come at a significant cost. So a fascinating Brexit reverberation being felt in Europe's financial centre, and it's not the first time we've used those words. First up, though, we're going to get stuck into a capital M MLEX story with talk about a toolbox upgrade for the Competition and Markets Authority, the UK's Competition and Consumer Watchdog. The government has put forward a raft of measures that would give the CMA more powers, particularly with reference to consumer law. But as we're about to hear, the watchdog hasn't received everything it had on its wish list. This is a key part of our coverage because as the world of big tech tests the boundaries of enforcement, regulators around the globe are clamouring for new powers that, as they see it at least, would equip them to protect local consumers in the face of new digital challenges. Victoria Bitoye is a senior MLEX correspondent in London. She's been covering the announcement and she joins me now. So, uh, Victoria, tell me about these proposed changes uh, what exactly is on the table? Yeah, so the um, the CMAs um, has been for a while now campaigning to see some changes to its uh, its current powers, and the UK government has laid out a number of proposals to essentially ensure that the CMAs um, post Brexit regime is fit for purpose. So the proposals cover a range of different topics. Uh, they span across consumer, most significantly. Um, There have been some tweaks proposed uh, to the CMA's merger regime and also um, important detail included about the the government's plans for the Digital Markets Unit regime, which will um, essentially regulate companies in the UK. It will sit within the CMA and regulate companies uh, that are deemed to have substantial and entrenched market power um, in at least one activity. So... In terms of the specifics, um, a lot of the changes that we have seen are things that we expected on the consumer law front. The CMA has been given the power to essentially decide whether a business has or is likely to breach certain consumer laws and impose penalties where necessary. Um, So the government is considering that the CMA uh, should be given the ability to fine companies up to 10% of their global turnover. Um, which is potentially significant in the UK because at the moment the CMA has to uh, go through a very lengthy court process just to get a enforcement decision against the company. It's proposed that uh, there could be some form of alternative dispute resolution mechanisms for customers, uh, something potentially quicker uh, that may, in some industries, bypass the CMA altogether. And it's also considering whether the CMA should be given powers to disqualify directors for major consumer breaches. In mergers, uh, the government has, um, amongst some of the the several proposals it has floated, um, it's sort of tweaked the application of the share of supply test, uh, which allows the CMA to call in certain deals in the UK. Um, It's made it slightly more easier to capture future competition, um, so killer acquisitions, um, 
while also sort of raising the threshold uh, for the CMA to examine deals from £70 million to £100 million pounds to just essentially make sure that um, it's still proportionate. And just briefly, in the DMU regime, the digital markets regime, the, CM, the government is considering whether to impose an advance notice reporting requirement on firms. So this will um, require them to send a report to the CMA before completion of the deal, giving the CMA uh, some time to sort of decide whether it wants to look at look at that merger before before they can complete. Mm. Now, what's the significance of these proposed changes? Are they really just a tweak or do they amount to something of substance? Yes, so the changes are, the proposed changes are potentially very, very significant because, um, as mentioned earlier, they have been a long time coming um, and the, the, the range that's covered, I've just touched on just a very, very small small number of them, but the, the range of proposals that are mentioned in both the consultation on changes to the CMA's consumer merger powers and the plans for the government's digital markets unit are so lengthy, um, they could potentially significantly change the way that the CMA operates in the future and even the way the CMA appears to the to the public. Um, so we... We've been waiting for these reforms for a very long time. Um, the CMA's former chairman, Andrew Tyree, back in 2019 in February, uh, made the unconventional move of publishing a letter to the uh, the then business secretary. We've had several since in the UK, so just to give a sense of how long this has been down the line, um, laying out all of these things that he wanted for the CMA, uh, essentially sort of a, wi- a wish list of what he felt the CMA currently needed and where it was sort of... Uh, there were gaps in what it was able to do because its powers just weren't quite living living up to that. And uh, there's been lots and lots of signals from the government that this is happening, that it's working on this, but we just we hadn't seen any significant developments until just a couple of weeks ago. Um, so that is why this is essentially so significant because it does in a way show that the government is finally willing to tackle this this area and essentially just just the consumer plans just to look at that could if taken forward bring the CMA's consumer uh, enforcement regime in line with its existing antitrust one so that's could almost certainly change the um, the view of the regulator um, if you know we, we're now dealing with a, a regulator that has sort of equal might on both fronts so the areas of interest uh, that you've mentioned are very much in line with international trends when it comes to, uh, I suppose, um, digital markets, when it comes to consumer law and the ability to impose substantial fines. Uh, but I'm just wondering if there were any curveballs. Was there anything unexpected? Yeah, there were a few curveballs um, in the consultations, the two that the government has published I guess the main one and the, the main curveballs are things that it sort of walked back from um, and sort of opted not to not to propose. Um, the main one I noticed was actually uh, the mandatory reporting requirement for all mergers. Uh, the Tyree, the original Tyree letter, had sort of suggested that the CMA's existing regime, which is voluntary, uh, companies can decide whether or not to notify the CMA of their deal, might not work, and it would be uh, worth considering. Uh, making uh, reporting compulsory, as is the case in several jurisdictions. Um, but that's not something that the government has taken forward. It believes the existing voluntary regime works well and strikes the right balance. 
Another interesting curveball is that the so focusing specifically on the digital markets unit, um, which will sit within the CMA. Um, initial proposals for that regime very much put the need to further the interests of consumers and citizens at the forefront, um, and that's something the government has explicitly said that it is not writing into the DMU's strategic purpose uh, because it doesn't believe that that's necessary and it doesn't want to overcomplicate things. Um, so, it, so it doesn't have that duty anymore. And um, and I guess the other sort of slight curveball is that. Um, under the uh, digital markets regi- regime, um, firms that are designated, companies that are designated under that regime, uh, there's long been a sort of a, suggest- a debate about how their mergers should be assessed, um, whether they should be subject to a more stringent assessment at phase two, or that essentially does away with some of the safe, not safeguarding, but some of the limitations that the CMA's current existing merger regime has. So at phase two, you look at com- whether companies, uh, whether a merger gives rise to a prospect of a substantial lessening of competition. And the CMA had proposed that um, that uh, test be sort of less cautious um, at phase two to allow some of these deals to be assessed more vigorously. And that's not something the government has taken forward. It's sort of raise its own version of that, uh, which still keeps the current test uh, that requires the regulator to find a substantial lessening of competition, but sort of rate lowers that probability um, of it occurring to below 50%. So so some sm- minor tweaks, um, some walkbacks, um, but, but still by large, I guess, in line with sort of what the CMA would have been hoping to get. And uh, Victoria, what might be the risks for the CMA uh, when uh, putting forward this kind of uh, overhaul? I I guess the biggest risk uh, for the CMA, if these um, if these proposals are to be taken forward as as sort of as they're laid out in the consultation, which will see it get significantly more uh, competency in its in the consumer consumer enforcement space is just how it will balance its priorities, especially if any of them are competing. Uh, The CMA has sort of increasingly uh, made it clear that it wants to champion consumers, it wants to be viewed as a consumer champion, it believes that that's that's where its focus should be. And I guess the question is whether that will uh, guide all else. And, I mean, it's, it's hard to sort of give enough detail but I guess the risk is that if it's um, that it does away with some of its existing measures because of something on the face of it is a is a good consumer story so that's um, so that's so that would be interesting how the CMA now uh, prioritizes the two because it's always had the full uh, breadth of powers in the antitrust space but not in consumer space so um, it'd be interesting to see what it does with them um, and I guess another risk is um, just for again on, in the consumer consumer law changes, um, the government's proposed finding powers for consumer breaches um, that will of course need some sort of system of redress for companies captured by that, and um, that's something that potentially will need to be ironed out um, if if we were to see sort of a quicker quicker enforcement action on on that side of things that 
that doesn't require a lengthy court process. Now, these are just proposals at the moment. How likely are they to be taken forward and actually uh, be implemented? I think um, given sort of how long it's taken the government to even make this step of laying out uh, these proposals that it would have, we, we are likely to now see something, something taken forward um, just because this is definitely seems that this is a lot of thought has gone into these plans. Um, but of course, we don't we don't know what the exact final um, changes will look like Um we're expecting, I think, the, the consultation for, for both of the plans uh, ends on the 1st of October. There's likely to be a number of uh, back and forth before then. Um, but I think I think it's safe to say that we will see some significant change to the CMA's consumer powers and, and also its merger powers. And, and, and yeah, that, that, that's something that has been signalled for a while and is finally um, starting to come into fruition. Victoria, it's been great talking as always. Thank you so much for your time today. Great. Good talking to you too. Victoria Ibitoye, a senior MLEX correspondent covering mergers and acquisitions as well as regulatory affairs from London. And Victoria has written not one but two pieces of analysis of the proposed upgrade to the CMA's toolbox. Her essays are now on the sunny side of the paywall and ready for you to read and cherish. MLEXMarketInsight.com. That's MLEXMarketInsight.com. Just head for the News Hub tab for the very best and the very latest of MLEX's reporting and analysis. I'm James Panicki. You're with MLEX's weekly podcast. And still to come, the looming deadline faced by the UK's clearinghouses. And don't forget that you can subscribe to MLEX's podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. We'd appreciate it if you were to leave a review and helped us spread the word. Now, a clearinghouse acts as the intermediary between two sides engaged in a financial transaction. It's a service designed to ensure that both sides of the deal receive the goods or the money that they had expected It's an important service, but it's also a service that UK banks may no longer be able to provide for transactions carried out in the European Union. And yes, it's all about Brexit. Luckily, here at MLEX, we have a European financial services team to walk us through these tricky issues. Fiona Maxwell is a financial services senior correspondent in MLEX's London offices. She's a member of the aforementioned financial services team, and she joins us right now. Um, Fiona, so you mentioned in your analysis that equivalence for clearinghouses will expire in June next year, so the clock is ticking. What does that mean in practice? So equivalence is um, essentially an access arrangement, um, which can suit both the UK and the EU. Currently, it suits the UK because the continent's biggest clearinghouses are here. Um, Those are LCH, Ice Clear Europe and LME. And currently, it suits the EU because it means that banks are freely able to use those clearinghouses without legal difficulties um, or additional capital charges. Um, So the, the situation we're in at the moment is the European Commission gave London up until June 2022 to continue to offer its services to European banks via this equivalence arrangement. And then kind of more behind the scenes, the Commission has asked EU banks to figure out a way to reduce reliance on London's clearinghouses and to try and replicate those services in the block. 
And uh, this obviously uh, would be to the detriment of uh, UK banks. Now, this has all come from Brexit. So as a result of that, it is safe to say that it's all very political. But I wonder why, given that there was a trade deal between the UK and the EU, why there hasn't been an amicable solution to this problem? Clearing houses are a particularly interesting one. You know, they're very technical, they're part of the plumbing and the financial system, um, but they're also incredibly important to a smooth running financial system. Um, and although they've been around for a long time, their use has been mandated since the financial crisis. Um, and they're widely recognised as a way to prevent risk spreading through the system if one party goes bust. Um, but the politicisation of clearing houses actually goes back some way. Particularly, I think of when um, so the UK challenged in court um, a location policy by the European Central Bank, which was essentially designed to force all uh, euro clearing into the bloc. Uh, that was actually before Brexit. But since the UK voted to leave the EU, it was kind of one of the headline things that everyone said, this is what the EU will try to claw back. And yes, there was a trade deal between the UK and EU, um, but obviously it's it's fair to say that, you know, since the UK has actually left the EU, relations haven't been great. And it, it kind of boils down to the EU saying, you know, why should the clearing of our currency take place outside of our reach? And also clearing is a lucrative business. So if the EU can take business from a post-Brexit London, why wouldn't it? Now, we've mentioned the June deadline, uh, June 2022. Now, is there any chance that this problem will be solved by then? And if it isn't solved, what happens then? So I think, unfortunately, it's one of those situations that's actually too tricky to call. So it can be viewed from two perspectives, I think. Um, If you look at it from kind of a technical, regulatory, financial stability perspective, there's probably no question that the EU should either grant the UK full and ongoing equivalents, or at least extend it for a period of time. But from a political perspective, that's a complete no-go. The EU didn't want the UK to leave the bloc. You know, it always says it's not responsible for Brexit. The UK took its vote. But since the UK has left the EU, there's a chance for the bloc to profit from Brexit by drawing more business into the EU, um, as well as obviously there is this kind of sovereign stance of we don't want the majority of euro clearing in the continent to be done outside of the EU. So yes, there's a chance that it could be extended beyond June if there are financial stability concerns, but if it boils down to politics, probably not. If it's not solved by then, I think clearing houses will need to start taking action in the new year to potentially kind of offload their EU clients and as well EU banks will need to find alternatives in the block so all eyes are basically on Germany's exchange Eurex. Now Fiona in your analysis you also talk about the UK's regulatory response to this. Now you describe regulators as being resigned to the access expiring. Why such resignation on their part? Well, I think this is actually a really interesting question because regulators are by their nature apolitical, you know, and they're technical, um, but clearly they're fed up. And uh, from their point of view, uh, the UK's rules for clearing houses and for derivatives are identical to those from Brussels. Essentially, they were copied and pasted into the UK's law book um, after the UK 
left the EU. So that in itself should be enough to gain an equivalence arrangement. Um, but as equivalents and as clearinghouses are so political, it's clear to the regulators that it's pretty unlikely to happen. Um, and I, I do I do get the sense they're quite exasperated by it all. Um, senior Bank of England officials in particular have been quite outspoken about it. Um, and I don't think they're kind of irked from a political perspective. And it doesn't mean anything to them who gains financially from where clearing takes place. But, you know, they really do care about what this means for financial stability. And it, it seems to me as though they're a little bit frustrated that politics is getting in the way of this as, as much as it is. And Andrew Bailey, who is the Bank of England's governor, has criticised the EU's approach um, by saying that any attempt to kind of force dealers to move clearing activity into the euro area would be controversial. And uh, I think he said of dubious legality. And also that the reason the EU gave this time limited equivalence is in acknowledgement of the fact that suddenly removing access could cause somewhat of an implosion in the financial system. So, you know, that's something that really would be untested. And that in itself could force them to extend the temporary arrangement. In the sense that they might not be quite ready at this stage. Precisely, yeah. Okay, now, so if access does expire, what do you think uh, UK regulators are likely to do to mitigate uh, any potential risks to financial stability? The Bank of England hasn't been specific about what action it would take in this event, but I think it's the sort of situation where they would say they have a range of regulatory and supervisory tools and they do anything and everything in their power to prevent financial instability. So John Cunliffe, who is one of the Bank of England's deputy governors, said last month that it's up to the EU what it decides to do, but that the UK won't allow any decision to lead to disorder and stress. So I think this is, again, this is where the exasperation comes from, um, the fact that the EU could be messing with financial stability. And after the you know financial crisis a decade or so ago, and after COVID-19, that's not really something UK regulators want to see. So I, I do think we'll hear more about this soon. Fiona, these are extremely important developments, so thank you so much for taking the time to explain them to me today. Thank you. Fiona Maxwell, a senior financial services correspondent for MLEX based in London. Fiona's analysis of the clearinghouse predicament is live and ready for you to peruse. Just go to the usual place, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight.com. And the appropriately named News Hub is the tab that you need to click on. And that's it for today's podcast. We'll be back in your feed next Friday at more or less the same time for more regulatory news brought to you by our team of reporters around the world. I'm James Panicki, MLEX Asia-Pacific Senior Editor, and from everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you very much for your company. I'll see you again next week. Bye for now.